Just imagine, you are a law-abiding citizen living in the United States, and the president signs into law an act to forcibly seize your land and then relocate you to another territory more than 700 miles away, where other people have been forced off of their land, and you have no political or legal regress, no right to equal protection under the Constitution. Your choice was to either move where the government tells you to go, or you will be forced off at gunpoint. If you don't, you and your family will be killed. Oh, and you have to make the entire journey on foot. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 is possibly one of the most heinous things our government has ever done, right up there with institutionalized slavery. But in the four decades leading up to the implementation of the act, the vilification of Native Americans wasn't a universal conviction. George Washington, who fought against and alongside of Native Americans during the French and Indian and Revolutionary Wars, supported a policy of acculturation of the Native Americans into the country. With some tribes it didn't work, especially the majority of those north of the Ohio River who were influenced by the British in Canada. But with the Cherokee and Choctaw nations, it was a success. The natives were encouraged to accept the Christian faith, learn to speak and read English, and adopt European economic principles, particularly individual ownership of land and property. And yes, in some cases, that property included African-American slaves. Presidents Adams and Jefferson's policies took acculturation further. If a tribe swore loyalty to the United States and supported the government in all matters, including the possibility of going to war against other tribes, their property rights would be respected and they would be able to remain on their lands east of the Mississippi River. But during the War of 1812, the rise of a new figure in American history would forever leave a mark on the United States. Andrew Jackson was a soldier, land speculator, and political populist. From his days fighting against natives on the southern frontier, like many other Americans, he had been inculcated with xenophobic and distrustful opinions towards all tribes, regardless of their loyalties and arrangements with the United States. In 1814, at the end of the Red Stick Rebellion, he negotiated the removal of the Muscogee tribe, also known as the Creek Indians, from over 20 million acres of land covering most of Alabama and southern Georgia. The irony in this is that some of this land belonged to the Cherokee Nation, who had fought alongside Jackson against the Muscogee. Jackson justified this part of the arrangement by asserting the Cherokee could have done more to keep the Muscogee in line. Most of the Muscogee went to Florida, where they allied and lived with the Seminole people. In 1818, Jackson led the United States Army into the Spanish territory of Florida under the auspices of stopping raiding parties of Seminole, Muscogee, and escaped African-American slaves from attacking settlements in Georgia. But most historians today have accepted that the accounts of native and escaped slave atrocities were largely fabricated and nothing more than a land grab to take Florida from the Spanish. In the days leading up to the invasion, Jackson wrote to President James Monroe, Let it be signified to me through any channel that the possession of the Floridas would be desirable to the United States, and in 60 days it will be accomplished. 
By the end of the following year, Florida belonged to the United States. After being elected to the presidency in 1828, in his first State of the Union address, Jackson called for the eventual removal of all Native peoples from the eastern United States. The Indian Removal Act was passed on May 28, 1830, passing in the Senate by a margin of 28 to 19, and in the House of Representatives only by four votes, 101 to 97. One of the leading voices of opposition was, surprisingly, famous frontiersman and Indian fighter, Tennessee Congressman Davy Crockett, who was the only member of the Tennessee delegation to vote against the act which ruined his political career in that state. The first tribe to be forced west were the Choctaw in September of 1830. Over the next eight years, the Chickasaw, Muscogee, Seminole, Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Shawnee, and Delaware people would all be removed to lands west of the Mississippi River. Every tribe that was removed suffered some casualties. The Choctaw lost perhaps 4,000 to a cholera epidemic, which swept through them during the removal. The Muscogee were not far behind with 3,500. The Chickasaw and Seminole lost around seven to 800 each, but none suffered as much as the Cherokee. The Cherokee were removed from their lands in eastern Tennessee and northern Georgia by force of arms under the Georgia State Militia and the United States Army. They were marched through the winter of 1838 and 39, one of the worst on record, up through Tennessee and Kentucky, across the Ohio into southern Illinois, across the Mississippi into southeastern Missouri, and then across that state to Fort Gibson in what was then being called the Indian Territories. On the 800-mile journey of the more than 20,000 Cherokee that started on the march, a third of them, perhaps as many as 8,000, perished from the cold, disease, and starvation along the way. The reason we don't know the number for certain is because the army kept no record and the Cherokee were not allowed to stop and bury the dead. A soldier from Georgia who was attached to the army wrote in his memoir, I fought through the war between the states and have seen many men shot, but the Cherokee removal was the cruelest work I ever knew. And today, we call that journey the Trail of Tears. The Cherokee settled at the western edge of the Ozark Mountains at a place they named Tahlequah, after Teleco, the largest town where many had lived in Tennessee. Tahlequah became the Cherokee Nation capital, and later, after statehood, it became the county seat of Cherokee County. The Indian Territories became an organized United States Territory in 1866, the year following the Civil War, but the name was changed when Choctaw Nation chief Alan Wright, who envisioned an all-native state within the Republic of the United States, offered up a name from his own people's language. It meant the red people as a whole body. Chief Wright's vision never fully came to fruition, but the Native Americans who live there today still have a powerful voice in the politics and autonomy upon their own lands, and they also have a deep, rich, proud history of survival and perseverance. That Choctaw word that Chief Wright offered up as the name of the new territory? Oklahoma. The 46th state of these United States of America. Oklahoma. 
This is episode 42. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. And hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler, and thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I am Alan Tatman, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. And this week... We head to the state of Oklahoma, where the winds come sweeping down the plains. And we'll talk to Zach Coker, manager of Prairie Artisan Ales Brew Pub in Tulsa. I happened to catch Zach right after the lunch rush on a Thursday afternoon on my way down to Texas. And I really appreciate that Zach took the time out of his day to talk with us, considering that he is just finishing up the lunch rush there at the brew pub. Tony Rehagen is on assignment this week. He's on his way back home from Denver, so you've just got me, and I'm here at the home office, the scenic capital, JCMO, overlooking the Missouri River. First, I have an announcement. We have stickers. Yes, we have Bruise Traveler stickers, appropriate for sticking on your laptop, sticking on your auto window, or as a mini bumper sticker, or anywhere else you like to stick your sticker. (laughs) You can check out what they look like over on the Instagram or Facebook page. And if you want one, and I know you do, here are two ways to get a sticker. Or if you're an old guy like me, what we used to call a decal. First, you can become a Patreon patron of The Bruised Traveler. It's easy. Go over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Traveler. There you'll see our Patreon page and a button says, become a patron. Click it and then sign up to make a monthly minimum pledge of $5 to support your favorite craft brew slash travel slash history podcast. Then message me on Facebook or Instagram or send me an email, cheers at thebrewstraveler.com and say, hey, Alan, I am a Patreon patron. And along with your mailing address, And once I get confirmation from Patreon that the payment has been made, I'll mail you a sticker and I'll give you a shout out on the show. You know, because everybody likes to stick a sticker. Now you can cancel your pledge at any time, but I hope you think that the show is worth five bucks a month and will continue to help support the podcast and put diesel in Brulissi's so we can continue our mission. Let me put my best Shatner voice on. To seek out craft breweries, to meet the interesting life forms that brew craft beer, and to boldly drink what we have never quaffed before. (laughs) And the other way to win a sticker is follow us over on Instagram or Facebook, and I'll have a question pertaining to this week's episode. Be the first to message me, now, or email, Don't answer in the comments, please, because then everybody can see your answer and your spoiler and you know who you are. I'll give you a free pass one time, but not a second. Anyway, be the first to message me through Instagram or Facebook, please. Or if it's easier, email me at cheersatthebrewstraveler.com with the correct answer and I will send you a sticker. Now, as for this trivia contest, you can only win once every six months. So everybody has a chance to get a sticker. So, become a Patreon patron or win the trivia contest. And if you'd like more information about how you get a sticker, 
check out the Instagram and Facebook post with the photograph of the sticker on it for all of these details once again. Thank you. Now, <clears throat> another thing. I've made a lot of good friends over the years. And uh, earlier today, I had the uh, I had the honor of visiting one of my oldest and dearest friends. And uh, this fellow was also a friend of my mom and my dad. And uh, his name is Jim Peters. We always called him white hair because he had this shock of light blonde hair and a beard. And he always looked like he just walked out of the Bighorn Mountains after a winter of trapping beaver. And... Uh, there used to be a group of us, and we did a lot of black powder shooting and rendezvousing, and if you don't know what rendezvousing is, look it up, uh, and camping back in that day when we could all still sleep on the ground and get up in the morning without limping. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I found out Jim listens to the podcast while we were visiting today, and uh, thank you, Jim. I like, appreciate that. And he said, uh, I always knew you'd someday be good at something, and now I know what it is. You travel around talking about history, drinking beer, and talking to people who brew beer. And, yeah, well, thanks, Jim. I'm glad I could fulfill your prophecy there. Um, Jim is fighting a hell of a fight right now, and he's fighting it damn well. And he still has his great sense of humor. He's still a good storyteller and one of the best laughs a man ever had. And... Uh, Back in the day, he was like a big brother to me in many, many ways. And, you know, old friends are best, like uh, aged whiskey and old shoes. There's comfort in them. So thanks, Jim, and his lovely wife, Marianne, who's also a dear friend. Back up in Pike County, Illinois, right across the big river from Rawls County, Missouri. Thanks, Jim, again, for being a good friend and having a great talk today. So, thanks again. And now... Let's head down to one of the most critically acclaimed breweries in all of the American Southwest. These guys make some delicious stouts and wild ales, and I'll talk a little bit more about them on the other end. But here he is, Zach Coker, brew pub manager for Prairie Artisan Ales Brew Pub. And here it is, your interview of the week. So Prairie, uh, Prairie itself started out uh, right around... 2011-2012. Started out with uh, Chase Healy and Colin Healy, the two brothers. Uh, Chase Healy is the mastermind behind you know, the recipes, the brewery, and that process. And Colin Healy, his brother, is an artist. Any of the artwork you see, that's his brother. Oh, okay. So they opened, the, they opened this place up together uh, out in West Tulsa. Uh, they basically take a warehouse that was an industrial warehouse and they retrofit it to, to brew in. Um, not a whole lot of capability there in terms of output. So early on, being kind of a, a you know, burgeoning brewery, they're not kicking out a, a mass amount of beer. Um, Chase had a following before. He had, he had hopped around different breweries and has, had worked here and there, and people knew his name and who he was. So when it opened up, he had that benefit, but um, if I'm not mistaken, the very first beer they ever did was a, uh, you know, a, a breaded Saison Prairie Ale in a cork and cage, 750. Nice. So, you know, very traditional right. style. Right. Um, and they, it's obviously Prairie still likes to do those things, but, um, Chase is doing that. He's kicking out some different beers, and obviously he brews bomb, you know, pretty bomb. Thirteen percent imperial style, chili chocolate, coffee, vanilla, and almost overnight, that becomes a countrywide sensation. People are trying to trade whatever they can get a hold of to get a hold of one prairie bomb. Um, he outpaces his production just like that. You know, he he gets to a point where he is brewing probably almost nothing but bomb, and realizing 
oh, I, I, I can't keep doing this. So he reached out to a guy named Zach Pritchard. Zach Pritchard is the current owner of Prairie. Um, Zach Pritchard uh, comes from a long line of brewery now in Krebs. They had a brewery called Chaff, uh, started in 1919. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was his great-grandfather that started that. Okay. So Chase reaches out to Zach Pritchard and says, hey, um, you have a massive brewery out here in Krebs. I need help brewing this beer. I, can, I, I don't have enough production capability to do this. So they kind of come to an agreement. Krebs is going to start brewing some of their bigger batch of beers for Chase mm-hmm. as, you know, as Prairie. Um, so that goes on for a while, that relationship, and it, it's beneficial for both. Zach's getting to make some money because he's he's getting to fill his fermenters up with beer and selling. Chase gets to make his money because he's selling his product out. They do that for a while, um, and then eventually, you know, the, this understanding of, of, well, you know, you're brewing most of my beer for me anyway, kind of, I think, develops. Um, and so Chase decides to sell a brewery to Zach Bridger. Um That transition happened right around three years ago, right around as we were getting off the ground, very proof of. And our location is kind of uh, interesting because we didn't start out under the umbrella of Prairie. We were actually a separately owned LLC. Um, and so that came with its own little set of issues and problems, especially navigating our laws. Um, but we opened up about three years ago, and we're going through this transition. Um, and then just recently it was announced that we were being bought by, by Zach Pritchard as well. So um, we're kind of all under the same umbrella now. Mm-hmm. We're all part of the Prairie family. But yeah, so, so Prairie is, is interesting to me because it was a brewery that just took off insanely. It was like a, it was like an exponential boom. Well, if you, if you get a product out there that's getting the talk and buzz, like I said, my friend in Chicago, he's been, he's been a, a fan of you guys for a long time. He's not been here and he's, he's told me he's very jealous. <laughs> and so I've got to take him a bottle of Cezanne. Oh yeah. yeah. So how did you get involved with these guys? So the guys that actually helped open up this location, um, Josh Royal, Polly Sorrentino, Bill Grant, they were all my bosses and former owners at a place called R-Bar. Um, I started working at R-Bar about 2012. Um, restaurant guys, all extremely knowledge, all extremely um, well-known in, in the Tulsa crowd. Josh Royal in particular was good friends with Chase Healy. They've been buddy buddies. Uh, Josh Royal was a huge craft beer guy. I definitely would say he's partly responsible for some of the craft beer explosion that's happened here in Tulsa. He's been an early forerunner for, you know, at our bar when he helped open that place up, he was strict about, we're having no domestics on tap. We're going to have 20 craft beers. And um, the closest thing I think they, that they ever had to a domestic on tap was like a Guinness or a Murphy's, you know. So, so Josh Royal and Chase Sealy had, had always kind of had this idea for a brew pub, you know, like a good old-fashioned brew pub. Mm-hmm. Food, beer, good place. Um, and so they end up getting this off the ground right at the same time period that Chase Healy is selling Zach Pritchard the brewery. So um, we're getting up off the ground. We start out being separately owned. Um, that comes with a really weird transition. Because back in 2016 when we first opened up, um, the laws were very, very strict still. This is yeah. Cinco de Mayo 2016. Right. We were There was a, a pretty good push and a pretty good movement for things to get changed that next election cycle, which did happen. Right. But we still, um, here at this location, we first opened up, our brewery was not allowed to produce anything over 4%. Right. And that was the only thing that we were allowed to sell to go out of house. So, very, and people were still confused also about the transition in terms of Prairie no longer being based in Tulsa, now right. being kind of based in Krebs. So we'd get people through the door that were 
you know, they were wanting to take home a crowd or a bomb, and I'd have to very politely tell them, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And then they would but, say, well, but, why? And yeah. I would say, well, because our laws are very archaic. Right. We're not allowed to. So, uh, okay. So could could you make over 4% beer? Farm so mills? here on this premise, uh-huh. no. And that is because we were a separately owned okay. business. Uh, now, Prairie, the brewery, could, could produce you know, bomb at 13%. Right, but you couldn't sell it in a tap room. But we had, well, we could, but we had to buy it through distribution. Ah. So we didn't have any sort of benefit. Oh, man. Early, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a headache. Uh-huh, All and right. those price tags or those bomb kegs are not pretty either. No. So, you know, here we are as Prairie Group of having to buy up our own beer through distribution. Anywho, yada, yada, yada. All these transitions are happening, and I think, you know, I think the owners definitely had foresight. They knew these things were going to happen, and they knew it was going to kind of be a struggle to get there, but... And they you wanted know, to get ahead of the curve. Exactly. Yeah. And we are. I think that, you know, if, if anyone pops up here and left and right afterwards, you know, they're going to have to come look at us right. to, to, to be the staple piece in Tulsa, at least. Um, you have Elgin Park as well. We love those guys. Good good, good brewing over there. But, um, yeah. So, and the portfolio is really centric towards uh, yes. farmhouse styles, wild ales, sours, yeah? Big town. I always say uh, sour stays on a stout. That's mm-hmm. your very niche. Right. You know, we, we don't brew ambers. We don't really brew brown ales. We don't brew those kind of medium of the, of the road beers. Um, you're going to get a big, boozy, heavy stout. Mm-hmm. There's been a few stouts here. We've had a few milk styles with the, the um, um, oh, I'm blanking the name now. We've had a few coffee Right. Like lighter coffee beers. Right. Um, but for the most part, if you're going to get a stout here at Prairie, it's, it's going to be big and boozy. could even be barrel-aged. Um, if you're going to get a sour, it's, it's going to range, but right. you're going to get something fairly fruity and sour. Prairie's all over the board in terms of that, that whole portfolio. They'll do a lot of different blending of sours and saisons and stuff, but that's your niche right there. Your blueberry boyfriend here, mm-hmm. which I'm drinking, yes. it's a blueberry sour. It's spot on. What five point seven? Yeah, right around yeah. that mark. Yeah. yeah, so that's it's really good. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that was one that the OKC brewery ended up brewing, and then the production brewery was like, "No, we're going to make this big. We're going to do this the whole." The name I understand the Prairies uh-huh. of Oklahoma. Anybody that's not been here, yeah, it's 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 high plains on the west side, and then the Panhandle, yep. and then on the east side, kind of it's kind of rolling plains. It rolls itself into the Ozarks of Arkansas and southwest Missouri. But uh, I understand that. How did the Catfish logo come about? So I think that's just kind of a little bit of some, some Oklahoma culture. Um, a lot of catfish around here. We have a lot of rivers I grew and lakes up in, and stuff. I grew up in Hannibal, Missouri. There so you go. Yeah, so, yeah, you get it. Yeah. Um, Chase himself is, is a fan of noodling. And so I think that at some <laughs> point, Colin, you mm-hmm. know, does all the artwork. Um, just kind of drew up this logo for Prairie, and it's it's the catfish with, with a little cigarette in its mouth. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was either the first, one of the first, or the first logo. Mm-hmm. And so that just has always stuck. Right. Um, now it's part of our official brew pub logo. It's right. it's our catfish surrounded by Prairie Brew Pub. Right. Um, but yeah, just kind of a little, you know, when Colin when he's doing all these art pieces and stuff, I think one of the things he tries to keep in mind is he wants to have fun. Yeah. You know, he's trying to make these beer labels fun. So. so. Zach just brought up the word noodling, so I, noodling. we have we have we have listeners all over the world, all over the United States, all over the world. Sorry. But uh, noodling, for those of you who are not from the Midwest or the South of the United States, <laughs> is hand fishing for catfish. Which and, can be uh, dangerous. It can be flatheads. They they what they do is they the males will guard the eggs and they'll in a hole up in the bank, 
and you go down underwater with your hand and reach into that hole and try to pull that catfish out. And any flathead catfish can get up to 70, 80, 90 pounds, big ones. And so it's uh, it's more of a feat of strength than it is anything else. Well, and you're also hoping that you're not going to hit a snapping turtle oh, sticking man. your hand down yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. How big is the uh, how big is the brew house here at the brew pub? So we don't we're not kicking out a lot of stuff. We have uh, we have four fermenters, two mm -hmm. of which are kind of you know bright tanks, holding yeah. tanks. We have two fermenters, and we have bright tanks that we do stuff. How big is the brew? How how, big, how many barrels is the brew keg? I, uh, so the the fermenters are seven, and then the bright tanks are five. Oh, okay, so you're real small. Real, real, real small. So smaller production for sure. Right. You know, for here, yeah. I think that you know when we're maxing out production, we're maybe kicking out seven to ten barrels a week and that's kind of just a guess and it's kind of odd for us because you know our, our system's a little it's a little bit older and you know it's, it's definitely an intimate scenario I've, I've actually got to help our head brewer greg do a couple brewing days i say help i mean i kind of mainly just watched him i got to help mash in and, and clear out the mash ton and stuff but um the actual production brewery though it's it's massive it's a fifty thousand square foot facility they how have many the, barrels they have I don't know how many barrels for sure, but I know they have at least one or two of the big 200 barrel fermenters in there. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's a big, you know. Do you know what the annual production was last year? I don't. I have. I recently talked to a MicroStar guy who, you know, MicroStar is one of the big right. keg producers. Right. Right. He said that we use the most MicroStar kegs in the state. So a good a good chunk so of kegs it, go out. Yeah, it, you guys are you guys are probably the biggest brewery in Oklahoma yeah. now. Right? I, by, I would imagine so. By far, biggest craft yeah. brewery for sure. Yeah. Where's distribution? So dis distribution is worldwide. Um, I don't know who handles you know the different accounts for um, you know in, in the United States. I know that when Prairie was early on, they got picked up by Shelton Brothers. So okay, they helped get Prairie beer worldwide. You know that. So you'd find you could find uh, Bomb and Vape Tricks in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. You know, actually Vape Tricks apparently is really popular in Tokyo. <laughs> That's like one of the one of the better selling beers out there. Um, but yeah, world, worldwide distribution in, in America is, you're starting to see most of the states getting the very bare minimum, like the bomb and the standard and that kind of stuff. I know Texas gets a lot of our stuff, and, uh, Missouri and the states in and around us. New York, we send a lot of stuff to New York too. There's a good kinship between the, some of the distribution folk out there. Uh, Evil Twin, I know that uh, Yepe and, and Chase were good buddies and they they did you know Bible Belt and stuff together, so. Um, but there's different accounts that handle diff different distribution channels. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a worldwide brand. Right. There's, you, you, you're almost guaranteed to find prairie somewhere in most major cities across the world. So most of your most of your beers sold in bottles. Yeah, I would say that most of the like the to go. I think that the the focus was always bottles. Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing a lot of cans now too. Yeah. Obviously, you reduce the amount of uh, incidents that you can have when, when you're doing canning instead are you of bottling. Are you distributing kegs? Yes. Yeah, yeah I know okay. that they distribute kegs right. too, yeah, for right. sure. Um, probably less than, than the, the cans and bottles. You make a little more money, I think, off those cans and bottles than you do for, for kegs. But um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because we'll get people that come in and ask about our beers being distributed. And they're like, I, we can't send our beer. Mm. We can't even send our beer hardly to anyone here in town because... Don't our production here so right. limited, but yeah, bomb and, and all those you should be able to find elsewhere. You've been here how long now? So I've been here for three years, okay, or almost three years. Right. Our birthday will be on Cinco de Mayo, uh, and yeah, we opened up uh, Cinco de Mayo 2016, so coming something, up on three years. Something you've learned about the craft beer 
game that you kind of surprised you or you didn't expect? Um, you know, a lot of people talk about um, how fickle the craft beer industry is, and it can be. Um, but I tend to see a lot of the same faces. I think that once people kind of get ingrained, especially here in Tulsa, um, ingrained in the culture and they find their spots, you see a lot of these people, they, they come and they, they, they're habitual. Right. They're going to come back to that spot and they're going to have the beer that they like and that kind of stuff. Um, I think just the scale, I think, was something that surprised me too. Um, I started working, you know, six, six years, six plus years ago now. In, the, in a craft beer bar, and I mean, even since I've been working here in Tulsa, I've seen craft beer just explode. Um, well, and, Oklahoma was a ripe field. Oh, it was a very ripe field. I you mean, had a lot of know. people who actually enjoy drinking, right. but just majority right. drink their, their domestics and their lake beer and stuff, which is fine. I still will have my lake beer here and there, but you know, if I, if I have to choose to sit down to want to spend money on a beer, I'm probably going to go to a craft beer bar now instead of, but that's because I have options now. Right. So the big hurdle for Prairie Artisan Ales was getting the state laws, getting over them, getting them changed. Big now that that's occurred, what's the next challenge coming down the road for Prairie? I think one of the biggest challenges that Prairie is going to have is, is staying current, staying, you know, just like any other brewery. I think you're starting to see breweries close their doors that people just didn't expect. Right. Um, yeah, um, so yeah. staying current, staying, you know, relative paying attention to the beer trends, paying attention to what's happening in and around the state, as well as you know, if you're shipping globally that. Um, it was a big challenge to have those laws change. And there's, there's still, I think, a handful of things that could change still, but um, just even with like sales, it used to be that when Prairie opened up, Prairie, as a brewery, was only allowed to sell 4% beer to go. Right. You know, you're, you're, a, you're a brewery that, that's predominantly known for a 13% imperial style, and you can't even give anybody that no, out the door. No, they have to drink that beer. Yep. However, you can sell somebody a t-shirt and give them a bomb. Oh. And that there's was... A, there's always more than one way to skin a cat. Exactly. <laughs> and that was that was kind of how it was. You know, there were a few places that did, like, the tokens. You'd buy a token, they'd give you a beer kind of thing. Right. Whatever it was, they just had to have a mitigating factor between right. the actual transaction being right. money right. for beer. Right. Um, so yeah, those challenges, I think the biggest challenge for Prairie is going to be staying current, staying, staying um, current, right. really. So you've been here three years. What's been the best day you've, you've had personally? Oh man, there's been a handful. Um, I would say day one was extremely exciting. Um, October 1, how are we doing guys? October 1st was really exciting as well because that was October 1st, 2018. Right. That was the day that our laws changed, and right. we were then allowed to start brewing oh, high point beer. And yeah, yeah, that was a we, we had a big celebration for that. Yeah. You know. We, I mean, that was that's <laughs> since we opened our doors, that's kind of what we were waiting for. Right. We were waiting for that moment to where we could kind of have the shackles undone, so to speak. Cool. I mean, Greg was kicking out awesome four percent beer. There's only so much flavor you oh, can yeah, get at four percent so beer. Can do that. Lastly, is there any big events uh, coming up this uh, summer? So we are actually celebrating, so Cinco de Mayo, uh -huh. uh, this Cinco de Mayo, we're having a big party here. Right. Uh, we'll have uh, some music going on. That's your anniversary. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's our third anniversary. We're going to make it a big to-do. Um, we have a few like special beers that we're going to put on tap that day. Um, I think we'll have a look at some giveaways. Thank you, guys. We'll have some giveaways. Um, we'll have a party. We're going to have a party here. <laughs> Well, Zach, I thank you for taking some time to Not talk to me today. And uh, Zach Coker here at 
Prairie Artisan Ales Brew Pub in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you come through here, make sure you stop in. Yeah. Thanks. Thank cheers. You, man. Cheers. You know what? And that's it. It just feels wrong to cheers without beer. <laughs> I didn't know what your policy was here. There you go. Cheers. Yeah. Policy is that there's not really much of one. Thanks again, Zach, and uh, that's kind of a choppy interview, folks, uh, because Zach was working the whole time we were talking, which uh, which is kind of neat as well. Uh, I was able to introduce myself to some of the folks there at the bar, and uh, more of them were interested in meeting Cody than me, but that's okay. Uh, I'd rather meet Cody, too, I think. Now, last year out of the brewery in McAllister in the brew pub in Tulsa, Prairie Artisan Ales, under their corporate name of Chalk Breweries, produced 17,000 barrels of beer, making them the largest craft brewer in the state of Oklahoma. I was driving uh, that day, so I couldn't drink a lot of their beers, but I did have at least uh, a decent sample of uh, Prairie Vue Francais, a Belgian farmhouse ale, and uh, another farmhouse ale, Deja Vu, and the Blueberry Sour, which uh, was, all of them were just fantastic. Uh, I brought a bottle of Brett back, and it's aging nicely in the fridge, and I'm taking it up to Chicago sometime in October, where me and my buddy Brooks will crack it open and have a glass or two. Uh, I also had a half glass of the beer they are most well known for, the Prairie Bomb. Um, I don't normally do this, but uh, writer Ken Gibson of The Alcohol Professor, and you can find them at Alcohol Professor on Facebook and at uh, their website, alcoholprofessor.com. He wrote an article in January of last year, 2018, and I'll have a link to it on the Facebook page. Um, and this article says everything I could or would ever want to say about the Prairie Bomb, and here it is. Mr. Kim Gibson. The name is simply Bomb. Brewers don't use exclamation points lightly. And that is perhaps significant to note for this beer from Prairie Artisan Ales than for most. Why? Because as a writer, as much as I despise exclamation points, this beer really deserves an exclamation point. The Tulsa, Oklahoma brewery has seen Bomb, usually referred to on the streets as Prairie Bomb, become a top 100 beer in the world on RateBeer.com for three consecutive years. Let's just say the latest version I tried is as worthy as ever. I managed to stumble across a stray keg at my neighborhood pub the same day I bought a single bomb at my local bottle shop. So I got twice the mileage, twice the fun this winter, getting a draft version and a packaged version. I didn't find much difference, suffice to say. It's just a great beer that is perfect for winter months. Bomb is an imperial stout that is aged on cocoa nibs, coffee, vanilla beans, and ancho chilies. And when I say imperial, I mean it's a giant of a beer. At 13% ABV, it is a winter warmer and then some. Sure to warm more than just your belly during a snow in. You may not even need wood for the fireplace. Anyway, I decided to pay close attention to the bottled version I procured pouring it into a tulip glass. The beer is stark black with just a minimal head of dark tan. One whiff told me all I needed to know, and it was, pardon the pun, an explosion of roasted malts, chocolate, and vanilla. 
The peppers get only a hint in the aroma, but this portends what's <laughs> this portends what's to come. I took a sip and enjoyed at first the thick, creamy beer in my mouth. Of course, the rush of flavor quickly overcame the texture as another explosion of flavor took place on all facets of my palate. Sweet met bitter as coffee and dark chocolate swirled with vanilla notes. As I took two or three more sips, the flavors at the back of my palate opened up, revealing the bite of ancho peppers, which blended nicely with the boozy finish for a warming sensation that only got warmer as I continued to sip. The finish really does round out the experience of a prairie bomb. I made my way through the beer, maybe with a distraction or two, but I noted that as I tasted the peppers more, they became more prevalent in the aroma as well. Ah, the joys of the olfactory. As a fan of spice, I love this aspect of the bomb or any peppered beer. Bottom line is that this annual winter winner from Prairie Artisan's Ales is just a superb stout deserving over every accolade it receives, and if I find more, I'll buy it. Now I wish I'd brought more than just one bottle. And Mr. Gibson, I agree with you. I couldn't have said it better myself. Prairie Artisan Ales has three locations in the great state of Oklahoma. The Brew Pub in Tulsa at 223 North Main Street, the Oklahoma City Tap Room at number 3 Northeast 8th Street, and the Brewery Tap Room at 345 East Choctaw Street in McAllister, Oklahoma. I can't speak to the Oklahoma City or McAllister locations, but the Brew Pub in Tulsa was very Cody-friendly, and he gives it four paws up. Operational hours vary by location, so if you need to find out what's going on there or when they're open and all of that stuff, head over to Facebook at Prairie Artisan Ales or check out their website, prairieales.com All right folks, this wasn't something that was originally going to be in the show. This news broke while I was editing and putting everything together. It is Thursday night. It's about 10:23. This is uh, May 9th and Kat Walensky over at Vine Pair, along with other sources, broke this story. This is too big. I had to put it in here. So some of you might be listening to this on your Friday morning drive to work. And you, I don't know if you've heard this yet. Boston Beer Company, the maker of Samuel Adams Boston Lager, and Dogfish Head of Milton, Delaware, the maker of Slightly Mighty, uh, Sea Quench, 90-minute, 60-minute IPA, they have merged, and this just came across my news feed in the last few minutes, and Kat Walensky of Vine Pair, uh, who is great. If you're not following Kat Walensky on Twitter or on, uh, on online, you need to be following her because she is ahead of what's going on in the beer world. And she writes, uh, Boston Beer and Dogfish Head Craft Brewery announced on Thursday the two beer companies will merge. The deer, the the deal is valued at approximately three hundred million, according to press release. Although announced as a merger, the companies will operate under the Boston Beer, uh, New York Stock Exchange (SAM) and led by Boston Beer CEO Dave Berwick. Uh, Dogfish Head co-founder Sam Calagione will join Boston Beer Beer's board of directors in twenty twenty. 
the entity will maintain its status as an independent craft brewery as per the Brewers Association definition. Dogfish Head is on pace to sell nearly 300,000 barrels in 2019. And the Boston Beer shipped nearly 4.3 million barrels of product last year in 2018. Uh, the announcement also added almost apologetically that its combined offerings will still represent less than 2% of all the beer sold in the U.S. Nevertheless, uh, the craft beer community is shook. This is big, big news. I'll have this, uh, I have a link to this story by Kat Walensky over on Instagram, Facebook page, so you can check it out. And uh, again, breaking news, Boston Beer and Dogfish Head, this is May 9th. 2019 have merged. You've been listening to the Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. So that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Please follow us over on Facebook and Instagram Travel Podcast. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas, please let me know. Message me or email cheers at thebrewstraveler.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please go over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It would mean so much. The soundtrack for The Bruce Traveler is so graciously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm, coming to Jefferson City on August 29th at the Mill Bottom Event Center. Looking forward to seeing Steve, Pat, Ryan, Pete, and Katie this summer. It's going to be a great show. I hope you can make it. Tickets are only $30 plus sales tax and fees and are available at GaelicStorm.com. Click on Tour. Find the date, August 29th, Jefferson City, Missouri. Click on that. Takes you to Eventbrite. You can buy the tickets there. And tickets will soon be available at PattyMalonesPub.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So until next time, if I don't see you at the pub or at your local tap room, I'll see you right here on the podcast. Drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And merrily, as always, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. And so long for just a while.
If I'd have known I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. New York Yankees center fielder, number seven, Mickey Mantle. 20-time American League All-Star, seven-time World Series champion, three times American League MVP, winner of the Triple Crown, 1956, Gold Glove Award, 1962, American League batting champion, 1956. Four-time American League home run leader, inducted in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, 1974. Born October 20th, 1931, Spavanaugh, Oklahoma. Died August 13th, 1995, Baylor Medical Center, Dallas, Texas.